0: this is Mark Arnold and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 187. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Freaky Magazine. Hey kids, have you read Freaky? The magazine of weird humor for freaks like you. Freaky Magazine is a way out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. 52 pages of insanity, the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners Get a free sample copy in the mail Made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way Just message your mailing address to theslowpoisoner at gmail.com That's theslowpoisoner at gmail.com While supplies last
1: So now is Mark Arnold's latest book called Pac-Man, the first animated show based upon a video game. This book tells the story of Pac-Man phenomenon and goes through the entire history of the Hanna-Barbera Animation Studios, the history of the video games, pre-Pac-Man, the history of Pac-Man, the character, the video game, the spin-off, the merchandise, and the animated TV series. Each and every episode of the classic 1980 series is covered and examined. Plus, Mark Arlund covers how Pac-Man has been honored on various anniversaries, including the 40th anniversary in 2021, a fun read for casual and hardcore Pac-Man and video game fans alike, featuring many character model sheets and other images. Available online through Bear Manor Media, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble. Get your copy today.
0: The Salem Paracon takes place November 12th and 13th at Salem State University. One of their special guests is Christine DeBell. You may know her from the movie Meatballs and also in Holy Terror, Lifepod, and so many other films. She looks forward to seeing you again at Salem Paracon, November 12th and 13th at Salem State University.
2: Friends, have
1: you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself.
0: Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. As the pandemic is now lifting somewhat, I am making more personal appearances at shows in Oregon and California. Check my Facebook page as to where I might be next, usually working with Lee's Comics. I'm getting closer to finishing my Mad and My Turtles books. Another monkey's book is on the horizon, as well as a book about TV animation studios. And look for more articles from me in Back Issue, Alter Ego, and Hogan's Alley, and various guest appearances on other podcasts, including those by Ed Rising, Hudson Ranny, Dennis Ball, Phil Hall, and others. My Pac-Man book is my latest release. Look for my Disney book and my Warren Kramer book coming soon. On today's show, we have a writer who is here to discuss his latest book, Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude. Here he is, James Campion. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another Fun Ideas podcast. And today I have an author. His name is James Campion. He's, uh, uh, he's written a few books, one about Kiss, one about Warren Zevon, a few other books we'll talk about. And his current book is called Take a Sad Song, Emotional Currency of Hey Jude. And so I want to welcome you to the show. How are you doing today?
3: <laughs> thank you very much for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. Yes, I'm doing well. Yourself?
0: Yes, I'm doing well, too. I had a a little bit of an illness earlier this week, and I was saying, I hope I can do this, you know, but oh, I actually feel pretty good right now. Good, Just, good. It's a cold, fortunately, but anyway. <laughs> oh,
3: yeah, these days you have to be careful. Yes, yeah, yes. So,
0: yes. Um, so um, I want to talk <laughs> about the current book first, because that's the whole purpose of having you on here. Oh, um Hey Jude uh, is a very good Beatles song. I'll just agree with you right there. Um, But as a subject of a book, it's kind of interesting. I'm a huge Beatles fan, so I can kind of go like, what were you thinking? You know, because it's like, I've seen people do like books about a particular album, like the White Album, which is probably the closest album to Hey Jude, even though it's not even on the album Uh, or even a grouping of songs or something like that. But to tackle just one song going all the way through and in all the different angles and ways that you do, which I've written notes here on how you've done that. Why? <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's a fair question, because uh, I'm nuts. Uh, well, the first uh, answer to that is I'm now the I think that I think I looked it up the 10th or 11th author to write a book about one song. So it has been done. And I got to know quite a few of these authors during the, the process of working on this book, which is very nice. Uh, a, a good friend of mine, Alan Light, wrote a book called The Holy and the, uh, the Broken uh, about uh, Hallelujah, the Leonard Cohen song. Grail Marcus, uh, the great, great uh, dean of music critics and a wonderful author in, in, in his own right, of uh, many great books, wrote a book called... Um, uh, like a Rolling Stone, Bob Dylan at the Crossroads, which is a huge influence on a few of my writings. I got to know Greil, uh, Greil during the, the writing of this book. And many, there's a wonderful book written about uh, White Christmas. Uh, Dave Marsh wrote, wrote a book about Louis Louis. So there's quite a few out there. And it was an inspiration for me. Um, I, I got the idea initially. and I don't think I've ever mentioned this in other interviews I've done. But when I wrote my last book, Accidentally Like a Martyr, The Tortured Art of Warren (laughs) Zevon, I wrote nine essays about single songs and then three essays about three seminal albums from his career. And I was able to have a narrative arc of his career as an artist and a man. And I thought that was unique. And my my good friend Stephen Hayden has just done the same thing with Pearl Jam. And he and I spoke about that prior to when the book came out. And I'm, I'm, it's, it's a wonderful book, I just finished it. And so it, it, what I thought was, I wonder if I could do this for a full song. And when I read those other gentlemen's works, I thought I can, <laughs> but what song? And the reason why I picked Hey Jude to answer the second part of why is it was my earliest sentient memory as a child singing the na-na's to help me fall asleep before I knew anything about the Beatles or anything about Hey Jude or Paul McCartney or anything. So that always kind of stuck with me. And when I started writing down notes to do the book idea, I started discovering more and more things about Hey Jude that are so deep and so long in the the grand history of the Beatles that it begged me almost to extend the story. I originally signed with Backbeat Books to do a 60,000 word book. (laughs) <laughs> and I ended up doing 80,000 words because oh, wow. <laughs> this damn song had so much to it. And right. uh, it inspired me. And I was very lucky to to interview so many great, learned, and smart people about it. And they helped me along the way to discover how great this song is, how great the Beatles are, how great a songwriter Paul McCartney is, and all the wonderful relationships. And everything about the year 1968, it really all blossomed from
0: there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very good. All right, we're done. No, uh, Thank no, my why. No, but, but, uh, I will <laughs> Sorry say for this. the long answer. Yeah. I will say this about Hey Jude, and it is a, uh, it's not my favorite Beatles song, but it's up there. It's one of the top ones. Um, I, I was thinking, if you're going to pick a song to work on and really deep dive and really dissect it like the way you have, um, it's a good one because it's not just a bit of fluff that McCartney just dashed off, you know, <laughs> in his sleep or something like some of his songs can be i suppose Mm -hmm. um uh like i don't know if you could write such an in-depth thing about say the song get back no i'm not saying that's necessarily a bad song but i mean understood in the case of hey jude it's written about a real life event a real life person um being julian lennon and uh in a lesser sense john and yoko and uh Mm -hmm. in the case of julian lennon you know he's he even has a current album named jude that he just put out in reference to this song so um obviously it resonates for them and everyone else and you know i've heard the history before and you discussed it a little bit in the book too of where um uh, McCartney's coming up with the lines, Lennon is enthralled, and he says, you know, the movement you need is on your shoulder, and he goes, I'll get rid of that one, and he, he goes, no, no, that's the best one in there, keep that in, you know, that yeah. type of thing, you know, those, those little tidbits, so there, there's quite a bit, to that has already been, you know, revealed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about the song. So you basically expanded upon it to ad yeah. nauseum in a certain regard, and actually did a pretty good job considering. You know, you know, I, I did like the way you did. It is like you, you kind of talk about the song, then you go, let's talk about. Beatle history and then talk about the song. Oh, let's talk about how McCartney's writing style is. Talk about the song. Talk about what was going on in 1968. Talk about the song, you know, like, you know, Thank the you. back and forth. It wasn't just all dah, you. Right.
3: Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And even something like the line, the movement you need is on your shoulder. Mm -hmm. I've, I've always been fascinated and I think the world has always been fascinated with John and Paul's relationship since teenage years, you know, the loss of their mothers, which I read about in the book, the connection they had the connection to their women, whom they met within, you know, just a couple of months of each other and then married within a week of each other in 1969. And what that song meant to John uh, and and to the fact that uh, until his dying day and his last interview for Playboy, John tells the story about listening to Hey Jude for the first time and thinking that this song is about him. And of course it is. And it's about Paul and it's about Linda. It's about Yoko. It's about Julian. It's about the Beatles. It's about 1968. It's about everything. And um, it's all in there. And I've always been moved by the fact, no pun intended, that John was so connected to that song and said that this is the greatest song that Paul ever wrote. And he always said that after that. And even Tim Riley, who is John Lennon's biographer and the great Beatle writer and professor and musicologist uh, said something very smart to me. And I put it in the book that the intimacy that John and Paul had was about the art and music. Mm-hmm. So it makes perfect sense. One, that John never said, and he did that with other songs, he did nothing to Hey you. It was perfect the second he heard it. And secondly, both of these men would go on, talk about letter her under your skin, let her into your heart. You have found her, now I'm going to get her. These two men would take these women and make them part of their art. They weren't just their wives. They weren't right. just the loves of their lives, but they took these women and they, you know, Paul put her, uh, Linda in wings and John did all that, the, that performance art and, and music and everything with Yoko. Mm-hmm. And you know, Tim said that's the love that John had for Paul, and back and forth, and that they extended that to their women, and said, "If I'm going to be really in a great relationship, it has to be a creative, artistic one." Yeah. And that I believe that that very much is in Hey Jude.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, do you think? Now, I, I did read through the book, but it doesn't mean I memorized it, so uh, I may ask you stuff that yeah, it says it in there. Thank you. Well, thank you but... for <laughs> reading. Well,
3: Thank you for reading it. I appreciate uh, that. Thank you. Mark.
0: But. Uh, um, Do you think that uh, they were thinking in those terms themselves when uh, they praised the song or is this more of your take on it? uh, No, no.
3: John did praise the song. He praised it throughout his career. I have three quotes from different parts of his life where he said that was uh, Paul's best work, Um, of course, as a as a music writer and journalist and, and critic, I guess you can call it. Uh, I like to call myself an essayist and I, I love doing research in the interviews. Mm-hmm. But for me, of course, there is some interpretation because that's the beauty of art, right? Whether it's a right. film or a painting or a poem or certainly a song. Mm-hmm. But to me, uh, I think Peter Ames Carlin, who is one of Paul's biographers, told me for the book, Paul always worked best in the subconscious. So yeah. when he picked things up, he was able to communicate those things. And I think he does it the best in my estimation in Hey Jude, where he absolutely is covering all the bases. He is falling in love with Linda. He is losing his friend John to Yoko, but understanding it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is comforting Julian, who whom you know, he relates to because he was a lonely child, lost his mom. He understood that John's father left him at five the way John was leaving his son to go with Yoko. Mm-hmm. uh john paul's empathy that he places in songs like eleanor rigby
2: mm-hmm.
3: or you know uh so many of his songs his solo songs as well yeah. that he gets from his mom who mm-hmm. is, was an empathetic figure a nurse and a caregiver and all of those things i think he puts in hey jude and he puts in other songs too like let it be yeah. um lady madonna Uh, Your mother should know. These are important songs to Paul. So I think if you look at the canon of the Beatles, if you see how Paul wrote and you see where the Beatles were as people, as a band and Mm -hmm. what their generation was at. I I think I, um, of course, a lot of it is interpretation, but it's also (laughs) research and reading the biographies. Paul has never come out and said, yeah, I wrote this song about John and Yoko. I wrote this song about Linda, but it's in there. You know, it's definitely in there.
0: Do you think this is Paul's most personal song or do you think maybe he's gotten more personal on others? And I can mm. name a couple if you, to compare. If you Yeah.
3: Know. Wow. That is a great question. <laughs> I mean, obviously he wrote a song about he and John years later.
0: Right. I was going to mention that here today. Here today, um, which is a gorgeous song. Uh, uh, I was that. going maybe, to mention uh, yesterday amazed. just for the sake of, you know, sure. that's, possibly considered one of his greatest songs too, but uh, a song,
3: by the way, Mark, that uh, he'd said in his forties, he is almost positive. He wrote that for his mother subconsciously because when he writes why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say when, when Paul's mother got sick, they sent her away to, to, you know, and they didn't tell the children Uh, one minute. She's, you know, she's vibrant. She's taking care of his skin, knee. And the Mm -hmm. the next minute she's lying, dying in a bed when he's 14 years old. So that was a obviously traumatic experience for Paul. And he felt that he put it in subconsciously in one of his great songs yesterday. I think it is. I do think it's his most personal song having spent a year with it, Mm -hmm. but I think he has others. I mentioned maybe I'm amazed about Linda directly.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, and some of the other songs that that yeah. H- had he had written, I can't think of it the top of my head, but yes, I think it is one of his yeah. most.
0: It, it's funny. I usually don't group it together, but I always think that uh, McCartney was at his peak in 1970. With the three, even though two of them actually were recorded a year earlier, but they all came out at the same time. Of, Let it be, long and winding road, and maybe I'm amazed. It's like those were Good like point. firing on all thrusters. All the sure them.
3: as hell is. But
0: yeah. but um, you know, if you know your get back history and everything, obviously two of the three were at least uh you know. Recorded almost a year earlier, he is a right. year And, and half I think early. the beauty of Paul, yeah.
3: he's very underrated, Mark, in the sense where you know, Paul wrote When I'm 64 when he was 16. Yeah, uh, it reminds me, and I've mentioned this in other interviews. Joni Mitchell wrote, um, you know, um, Both Sides Now when she was 21. Yeah, uh, when she sang it in her late 60s, it was to me much more moving. It's a gorgeous song, one of the greatest songs ever written. I could write a book about that, but yeah. she wrote from the standpoint of someone who's lived life you know and she was so young so these 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 artists are able to put themselves in these places and and these mindsets and and communicate well and paul is totally underrated in my mind uh as a songwriter and as a lyricist right uh in that way yeah
0: yeah um and you know one that a lot of people don't know i don't you'd probably know if you're total Paul guy and have everything he ever put out is a more recent song called the end of the end, you know, where, you know, he's thinking about his own mortality and death. And I think he was in his sixties at the time, which is, you know, considerably up there, but not now he's in his eighties. So it's like, you know, if, like, if he wrote it now, you'd say, Oh yeah, he's thinking he's going to die soon or something, but he wrote it 20 something years ago. And it's like, you know, it's like, well, I don't think he's thinking he's going to die anytime soon, but the thought has crossed his mind. So, um, uh, The interesting thing about McCartney, and I don't know if you agree or not, is just that he's not like Lennon in, in this regard. He doesn't seem to like care too much to report on himself too much. Uh, he uh, does. Yes. He does at times. But, right. you know, he he, he he does a lot of third person songs, which Lennon always kind of seemed to uh, disown, although he did considerable amount of those, too. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, you're right about
3: that. Uh, it, it, that's one of the things that the singer songwriter uh, Eric Hutchinson, I interviewed songwriters, professors mm-hmm. and uh, writers and, 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 and rock critics and, and biographers of Paul and the Beatles for the book. And uh, Eric Hutchinson is a great singer songwriter, uh, and he's a good friend. And um, he was the person that pointed out to me at the very beginning. This is a second person song. He's talking to someone else. It's very original in the sense where not that it's original; people have done it a million times. But it's original in the sense where it's not polemic. He's not preachy. You never get the feeling that you're being told, "Hey, you know, pick up your bootstraps, get it going, do this." No, it's and that's why I find it's a lineage and some yeah. of the musicologists told me it's a lineage to she loves you. You have one man talking to another man about a woman. But yeah. not in the way like I'm going to get your woman and I steal that woman that kind of blues rock and roll trope. Yeah. It's about it's about you have a chance to change your life. Don't blow this. Yeah. And I remember Rob Sheffield from Rolling Stone telling me and I put it in the book that it's very rare for two for a two man, two men speaking or a man telling another man sincerely you have a chance to find love, be vulnerable, be there for pain, let the pain in. Uh, And uh, that's something that Paul did. And and that was quite unique, but you're right. uh, John wrote more on a personal level and he made a concerted effort to do that after in my life. Whereas before he wrote, uh, you know, Norwegian Wood, kind of a story about an affair instead of actually saying it. So, uh, but you're right. but, But Paul continually told you these wonderful narratives like Eleanor Rigby in which He takes these characters and he makes a narrative about lonely people. He makes his point that way. But then of course he's got those songs like we can work it out. And for no one where he's kind of communicating with Jane Asher, you know, the woman (laughs) that he was with before Linda. So he does balance that beautifully, but good point. He does write more in the third and second person than John did. Yes.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, And you touched on this a little bit in the book. You only mentioned a couple of examples, but I wanted to uh, mention some more. So you said, if there wasn't a, Hey Jude, There wouldn't be a you can't always get what you want by the the Rolling Stones or a Bohemian Rhapsody by um, Queen. But even within the Beatles, um, there are two songs that really are similar in a certain way that you didn't even touch on. And I was just kind of curious your thoughts. One is Lennon's I Want You, She's So Heavy and George's Isn't It a Pity from his first solo album,
3: I do touch upon yeah. that in the book. Uh, not oh, I, guess I, I want that part. you, yeah. <laughs> he, I know that I, I brought it up because the famous story is that Paul did not like the answer pieces that George was playing originally when they were arranging the song. So right. every time he sang "Hey Jude," George would go "bam down. you know, what I right, mean right. that kind of thing. <laughs> and Paul didn't want it. I, I, interestingly enough, years later, George got his revenge because he ended up doing that on "Real Love." Uh, after every line, he's playing a, a lick, but. In, um, in the case of Is not It a Pity, uh, George is quite, in a literal sense, sending up Hey Jude at the end, where he just takes the Hey Jude thing. In a way, he's saying, isn't it a pity because they kind of fell apart? And George always felt like the little brother to John and Paul, and he specifically was Um, I don't want to use the word tortured, but pushed by Paul quite a bit during the Let It Be sessions, even in the get back revisionist idea of, hey, these guys still love each other and played well together, which I think we all believed, even seeing Let It Be, uh, that George felt a little bit more angst towards Paul I mean clearly he did because he played with John afterwards he even played on how do you sleep where John is mocking Paul so there's an idea that George had a little bit of a beef there so he puts that it is in the pity you that's a great point about I want you which of course comes later after hey Jude I do fail to mention that but you know I've interviewed a lot of professors that talked about the songs like um you know Layla yeah. in which you have one part of the song that's this, and yeah. then the ending part that's a completely different thing. Which right, is what right. Hey Jude is, and and then the sense of Hey Jude, where the nana part is longer than the structured song, which is crazy. Yeah. Um. But yes, they. I. I think it was uh, Eric again who mentions you can't always get what you want. A couple of people mentioned Bohemian Rhapsody. One of the things I found out is that the same piano that Paul plays on Hey Jude, because it was at Trident Studios, Freddie Mercury played. For Bohemian Rhapsody.
0: Oh wow I didn't know that. <laughs> it's a nice
3: little
0: connection yeah. There we go we learned something here. <laughs> yeah, um, another one I didn't mention also but and it's only interesting because Lennon once said of course Lennon always contradicted himself but he always said I like if I could write like TV commercials i you know that would be the thing to do if I could keep it short and simple but right. it seemed like uh, once Paul did Hey Jude it gave Lennon a little more Yes. freedom to actually and the other one that came to mind was his version of god you know because uh it kind of starts off it, it's a two-parter as well it doesn't yes. have a na 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 part but you know it excellent has the theory. the first part about god and then the second part is just what he no longer believes you know over and over in kind of a repetitive tone. that's
3: <laughs> excellent that's an excellent example of that yes yeah. and you know it's funny about that one of the things that I learned when the white album came out during my working of the book, uh, the box set Mm -hmm. and they had that take 18 of revolution that was recorded on May 30th. One of the first takes and it goes on for nine, 10 minutes. And John is screaming at the end, much like Paul does at the end of Hey Jude. And I almost feel like, and it's ironic that the uh, upbeat or the single version of revolution is on the B side of Hey Jude. When they worked on revolution, Paul's right in there with him, you know, banging on the piano while John's screaming, all right, oh! you know, he's really right. getting into it. And I find that that gave license to Paul yeah. to do a very long version because, you know, you got the first part, which is, you know, you say you want a revolution. And then you got the end part, which is just a basic vamp, which Hey Jude is on the all right, all right, instead yeah. of na-na's, na-na's. So it's great. Those guys were so competitive but so influential and inspirational for each other. So it's all right there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Although they can tend to do it in a good way, but uh, I was saying they can also do it in the wrong way. Like what's the new Mary
2: Jane. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. You know,
0: uh, and even, even, uh, you know, revolution number nine has its critics, you know, because of it just kind of goes on and on and it's not really a a comprehensible song, you know, but uh, you know,
3: I, I love Revolution Nine. I always yeah. did, even as a kid. Yeah. Uh, the White Album is my favorite Beatle album. But what's, what's,
2: it's
3: my what's the? Oh yeah, okay, cool. What's the new Mary Jane? Is awful. It's always been awful. It drives me nuts. I hate it. I, I yeah. it's awful. I had it on a bootleg in high school, and I just couldn't even believe it. I'm like, what is happening? And you're right; it goes on for
0: <laughs> My favorite part of it, though, is where he says, "Let's hear it before they take us away," and it cuts off before he yeah, even says yeah, the whole yeah, yeah. Wet, You know. <laughs> Anyway, uh, but yeah, it's like it got to be the point where it's like, uh, you know, they're going to record it. And that was the year 68 was when Lennon started doing all those albums with Yoko where Baby's Heartbeat, Two Minutes Silence, the really... Or even George with electronic sound, just the indulgence there, you know, how much will these Beatle fans tolerate here? Which is funny
3: because that's all comes from Apple or the letter Zapple and all these different things. And Hey Jude is the first single uh, released by Apple. And that's one of those great statistics that I talk about early in the book that Hey Jude has. uh, And that is it's the largest selling single ever released by an initial label. So you know, let's say like if Sun Records came out, you know, or Chess Records, or Columbia Records, no other record company had released this, their initial single that sold that much. Now, of course, this is the Beatles, right? Right. But it, it is "Hey Jude," and I and I talk about this too. '68 is very important, but also they did the video, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I interviewed Michael Lindsay-Hogg, who directed "Let It Be," but he directed that video, and he he and I speak, and that that was one of my favorite chapters to write about because in, in when he created that, in a sense it was a way for the people who had not seen the Beatles Mm. play together since 1966. And that's people who bought tickets to go to San Francisco or to the concerts, but on TV, think about that. The Beatles had not been on television to play together probably since 65. So Mm. it had been like three years since anybody saw the Beatles. So to see them together and singing the song about togetherness, well, that was a big deal. And that, you know, helped sell that record worldwide. It was also no, in num- it was number one in more countries worldwide than any other Beatles song, and I think for decades than any other song ever re- released.
0: Yeah, Massive. it's kind of interesting. Yeah, the, think about that because um, I I always think of the 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 what what's the word I'm trying to think is that the Beatles were constantly progressing, right. or some may argue that it was a peak with Sergeant Pepper and then everything else after that was downhill. I won't say that, but no. you know, in a certain respect, this it was the peak and everything after was downhill in a certain respect. I, I can't say. That's very good. Yes. yes. No, yeah. again, that's really yeah. I
3: touch upon that book. It, I, I'm so yeah. glad you said that because I don't want to, I'm not going to die on that hill,
2: yeah.
3: but, but for, for the, for the purposes of argument and it's, you know, I've had authors say it's your book, go for it. But I, I broke it down, and I think the fact that this is the last time <laughs> all four Beatles walked into a studio to record a single, like they did in 1962 with, uh, with um, Let, Love Me Do, and then for many great singles that didn't end up on albums. Right. This is the last time all four of them walked in just to record a single together. Right. So it's the end of an era. Right. And after that, the slog of the end of the White Album, and then obviously trying to get their stuff together for Get Back, The Fights... The falling out, and then the Abbey Road to get one last thing. But even when they recorded Abbey Road, they knew it was over. I think there's some evidence now that it looked like they were still planning on another record. But we we all know that, that things were fraying financially, emotionally between these guys. So you could look at Hey Jude as the final sunshine, like what the, the Beatles at the height of their powers, at the height of their popularity, and as close as they're going to be for the rest of their careers.
0: Now, you said something interesting just now that I never really thought about. The it is the last original single single with all four of them, because yeah, the next original single, all the later singles were off of albums, which they never did much in the early days, you know. And at then all, late, right? at the end, they just oh, let's grab one off of Abbey Road. And then you know, Let It Be actually has three singles off of it, which is you know mm-hmm. almost like uh, Urset's greatest hits album. It right, sure is, sure And then you but, got but, the
3: Ballad of John but, Yoko, but which is. I was going to say and, Ballad of John right.
0: Yoko was original, right. but you know how, how beetly is it? You know, it's like, I was like the, the, the quote uh, that George said about it, you know, uh, you know that he wasn't upset if he wasn't pictured on it or something. Well, it wasn't called the ballad of John George and Yoko. So I wasn't too upset, yeah, you know, right. or that he didn't play on it, you know, it's like, yeah, sure. so. <laughs> right.
3: So but, it, it is a, it is a demarcation. And thanks for, thanks for noticing that. Cause it's one of the things that I, that I struggled with, but I think once I, you know, if you look at it, you could make a fair argument that hey jude is is that last end of that amazing run and then you have goodness you have greatness in other case, cases but it doesn't seem cohesive it doesn't say and i and also the na na nas and the yeah yeah yeahs from she loves you there's a lot of callback you know mm-hmm. to the to to that those halcyon days where they changed the world
0: yeah and even though you know the beatles or as solo artists had single hit records that weren't on albums. Uh it, it seemed like that kind of era in general was coming to a close of you don't have a song just out there by itself. It has to be part of an album. I mean, granted, like I said, when they started their solo careers, you know, Ringo just started off with singles. Um, you know, before he got into a proper rock and roll album. I'm not talking about sentimental journey or things like that. But uh and then uh um, both Paul and John put out just singles before they put out proper albums too, but um maybe I'm out of the order on McCartney because, yeah, another day came out after McCartney, but anyway, anyway right. but you know, it wasn't on an album, that's my point, but yeah, it, it seemed like, um, I, I think the thing that your that your point was that it was the biggest selling single on Apple, and the first one, I never really thought about it that way. I said, surely there was like big records on Apple and I was like going through them all. And I was like, oh, well, live and let die. Well, maybe not imagine, maybe not, uh, you know, and I'm like going through it, my sweet Lord, maybe not, you know, and it's like, okay. You know, I, I never really thought about it that way that it mm-hmm. was the, the best selling one.
3: And of oh, any uh, record label. So yeah. that, that would be like Columbia releasing some, the first song that Columbia ever released yeah. being their biggest song. Because you know nobody ever, you know, like that—that's an amazing coming right out of the shoot. And you know you have to remember this was a time when the Beatles kind of plateaued in their fame. They—they—they had the—they had what what I I think it's still uh, underrated uh, and certainly ahead of his time. But the Magical Mystery Tour film kind of bombed, and and Brian Epstein dies. And right. you know they're they're breaking off in different ways. They're getting married. They're moving out to the to the suburbs. They're you know they're they're going to see uh, the, the the Maharishi. There's a lot of things going on there. So in many ways, the Beatles kind of have plateaued. And this was a huge you know huge statement by them. Hey yeah. Jude, and it it, uh, it 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 reestablished their their dominance on the charts yeah. and and as influencers in the yeah. world
0: because i think even the previous single of the last capital one lady madonna i don't think did it not make it number one uh was it here or in england one of the two places i don't think it made it to number one yeah there's a couple
3: eh. of those right there was a couple of those that were number one in england not number one here that's yeah. why they always said like there's 20 like for instance yesterday was never released as a single in britain so it doesn't, yeah. it's never number one right. uh, or in the uk Uh, So I believe that there are 20, which is why they came out with 20 uh, back in 2000, 2001, uh, 20 uh, number one hits uh, by the Beatles in America.
0: Yeah. right. So um, it's just interesting because it seemed like they were kind of struggling in 68 at the beginning of the year what to put out as a single lady madonna took the nod but i know lennon was trying to get across the universe and never ever really succeeded in getting it out as a single and um i think cable dog was like too late for the running and uh um you know, it's interesting that I, I think Lennon d- was having so much trouble. That's why they gave George the B side with the inner light, just just because it's like I don't have anything, you know. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting time. Um, the the one thing I'm curious about, and uh, we are kind of running out of time, but we'll come back to it once we rejoin. We have sure. about two minutes left. So, uh, but uh, is was this song Hey Jude? always designed the way it came out, meaning it was supposed to be the big seven minute, 45 second or whatever it is, epic. Or was it originally supposed to be like the first three minutes and then it evolved over time in your research?
3: Yeah, I think it's the B, uh, the latter. You know, they, they um, Paul wrote the song in about a day and a half. From, when I, from, from my research, he went up to visit Julian uh, and Cynthia on June 29th, 1968. Mm-hmm. He came back and he played it for John about a week later, the first week of July, he started playing it for other people. He played it for the people, the, the guys in bad Finger. He played it at a pub. He played it for, you know, different people, uh, the doodad bonzo band or something, you know, so he played yeah. it for a few people. So we know these things because they told the stories and I put it in the book. So Paul basically wrote this song and structured it, played, worked on it with John, worked on it, played with it. You know, John came up with a beautiful harmony but Paul says we kept going in the studio because we were having so much fun, and you could see it in the film. There was a, a film crew I wrote, write about it in the book that came to Abbey Road before they went to Trident and filmed them working it out. Just the three of them because George had been had, had left either on his own accord or or Paul kicked him out of the studio or something because yeah. he, he couldn't get it together for those those guitar parts. But and they're going over it. You could see if you if you listen to the to the outtake from the anthology, the outtake from. Uh, from the White Album box set and you put those all together you could see them getting longer and longer and longer so it kind of developed over
1: time yeah
0: very good and we'll be back after
1: this you remember them from your childhood Happer for the Friendly Ghost Richie Ridge Hot Stuff Baby Huey Sad sack and roll, Audrey. You read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions: The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and The Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The companion is also available from fair Manor media. They are available in hardcover paperback and ebook version. Order your copy today.
0: Okay. We're back. And uh, just wanted to uh, just say one last thing about Hey Jude. And then kind of delve into your other books. We can still talk about the Beatles and everything, of course. Um, and then it leads to a question. So I became a Beatles fan in 1977. And I've said my story before. I'll keep the short version. As um, I saw Eric Idle from Monty Python hosting Saturday Night Live doing a outrageous version of Here Comes the Sun, where he's basically yelling and going, here comes our sun," And I say it's all right. You know, It's like I went to my parents and I said, what does the real song sound like? <laughs> And so they they had actually a copy of Abbey Road and they go, well, we have the album over there. and the, Oh, okay. And so I pulled it out and I played the song. I go, oh, I've heard this song before. And I flipped it over and then uh, played Come Together. Then I played Something. And it's like I heard Octopus's Garden on there. And it's like, I've heard all these songs. That's not right. You can't have all these songs on one record. (laughs) And um, so that's how I became a fan. That was the first one I started with. Started at the end of the career and goes backwards. Um, The only other thing my parents had was they had a copy of Help uh, backed with I'm Down. So that was the extent of my record collection. And then slowly (laughs) started getting things. Um, I tended to buy singles more than albums. And I remember there used to be oldies that they would put in, in plastic in these little cardboard holders that were like mm-hmm. long that they just put a seven inch single. And one of them had, Hey Jude, back to the revolution with big apple on it. I said, Ooh, an apple, because by 77, I think they had turned everything back to capital and stuff like that. So I was all excited. And then I, uh, I was at this point starting to try to get everything but it wasn't streamlined like it came out on cd later where you could just buy 13 albums and you had everything <laughs> you know now you know you had to buy a single and this song was over in this compilation and this one's over here mm-hmm. blah, blah 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 um and hey jude and revolution were on the Hey Jude album but i didn't know that at the time and i figured it out later but um anyway uh my point was uh, how did you first hear the song? I know you said you heard it as, as a youngster. Was that the first Beatles song you heard, or were you a Beatles fan already? Or it, what? It would have okay. had to have
3: been. It would have had to been. And I didn't. And that and, and that was no connection to the Beatles. None. It was yeah. just this melody. I was in love with melodies. You know, I I used to watch these TV shows, uh, Captain Kangaroo, or the Bozo oh, yeah. Show when I was a kid. This is pre Sesame Street. You know, Disney songs. My parents would get me Disney records. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mary Poppins went to see that when I was a kid. Loved that musical. Oliver, I was taken to as a kid. So I, I, I was very connected to music. That was yeah. my favorite thing. It's always yeah. been my favorite thing. And so uh, somehow I was five and 68. I was going to be six. and I, I was born in September. So it's towards the end. Mm-hmm. And so uh, somewhere along the line, on the radio and it was everywhere. So everybody I interviewed who was around the time said it was, God, it was everywhere. Um, so I must've heard it either, you know, uh, coming out of a, a window or a, a store and that those nanas over and over again, you know, how that connects to a kid, you know? So I just remembered it, sang it over and over again in my head, stuck in my head, which yeah. Paul is great at. And then when I would have these nightmares, uh, you know, and you call your parents in, and the first time they come in, they comfort you. The second time, they, they kind of humor you. And by the third time, yeah. they're like, just go to bed. <laughs> and so I would just sing this <laughs> over and over again yeah. to get me to go to sleep. So I didn't know where it came from, I didn't know anything uh, about it. I, I later, yes. when I got an, a, a transistor radio, when I moved to uh, Jersey uh, when I was 10 years old, uh, my father got me a transistor radio, and I started listening to pop radio, WABC here in New York. And, of course, they played Beatles stuff. A Cousin Brucey was a Beatle guy. He was kind of like uh, another fifth Beatle that followed them around, interviewed them, had them on the show, when they came to America. So he was still on the radio then, and he would play, you know, Beatles songs almost every hour, at least one. So I started to hear the Beatles songs. And just like you, you just recognize them. So later on, when I got, like, you know, the Red and the Blue albums, Mm-hmm. I already knew most of those songs anyway yeah. mm-hmm. and then discovered the albums later in, in high school and, and that kind right. of thing. So my, my Beatle thing was gradual.
0: Yeah. Mine was too, if I really think about it, because I mean, the very first thing I ever heard to knowingly is like Yellow Submarine, but it wasn't even the Beatles version. It was the Muppets version on Sesame Street. Nah. So <laughs> that's how I, I that's had determined that years later. So right, anyway, right. Um, so besides uh, Take a Sad Song, I, uh, You've written at least two more books about music. One is Shout It Out Loud, the story of Kiss. Kiss destroyer album and the making of an American icon. Yes. And uh, the other one is Accidentally Like a Martyr, Tortured Art of Warren Zevon. So um, you said you had a cool story before we got on the air here about uh, the Kiss uh, Destroyer album, the album cover and its artists. So, yes. So I, I'm like, part,
3: <laughs> I was very excited to be on uh, your show when I when I saw that you, you concentrate also on comic books. So this is the first time I've been on a show that had any kind of theme in that direction. Two things I want to say. I've said this once or twice before in interviews, and I always tell students when I speak at colleges or high schools or wherever. And that is uh, the first book that inspired me to be a writer was Stan Lee's uh, origins of Marvel Comics. Oh yeah, uh, I loved comic books when I was a kid, and it never occurred to me. And it seems odd, it never occurred to me that people were writing this. <laughs> you know, when you're a kid, you think it just shows up. this. I mean, when I used to go to New York to visit my dad, who worked, you know, uh, down this giant building on Fifty Seventh Street, it was like going to Oz. I would look for Spider-Man. I'd be, where's Spider-Man? Spider-Man's in New York. He's down here somewhere. I mean, I was totally into the whole mythos of it. So when I got that book, oh, I couldn't have been more than 11. Yeah. And, I, and Stan Lee said something in there that totally sparked me. It said, you know, the greatest thing about writing is that it comes out of your head and ends, on, ends up on somebody's nightstand at night. And uh-huh. it's like this amazing communication. It seemed like magic to me. Mm-hmm. And so it made me want to be a writer. I used to write comic books with my friend, Chris Pereira. We had our own comic book line that we used to sell the kids in the neighborhood uh, in the seventies. And uh, you know, I, I was wrote for the school newspaper. And I remember in my eighth grade yearbook, I wrote with, you know, they ask you what occupation I said, writer. So it was really came from that. So comics books were a big influence on me mm-hmm. um, in the early days and especially Stan. Um, so yeah. So the kiss thing, so I I decided to write this book about Kiss's Destroyer, and uh, it, the main idea was to meet Bob Ezrin, who, uh, if anybody loves comic books, you know that Bob worked with Alice Cooper for years, and he created these amazing, amazing albums that were like horror movies. They were like comic books, yeah. and when he worked with Kiss, he did the same thing. He told these guys, "Look, you're not getting any themes out of these. All you're writing about is sex, drugs, rock and roll, women." You know. But you're not. But you're you're the demon. You're the love child. You're the spaceman. Space you gotta write songs that fire people's imagination. So when I heard that when I was thirteen, coming from a comic book background and loving Alice Cooper, so I wanted to write this book so I could find Bob, and I did, and I got to spend a lot of time with Bob and kind of pen pals now, which is great. But it never occurred to me. I I, I realized writing the book how much that cover was so much like a comic book cover and mm-hmm. how much I used to stare at it. And it made Kiss into superheroes. They were superhuman. It did what Bob Ezra did on the vinyl. They, he, it was done on the cover. Turns out it was painted by a gentleman by the name of Ken Kelly. Mm-hmm. And Ken was a comic book artist that wrote that. And I used to love those horror comics. Yeah. You know, creepy and eerie and yeah, weird yeah. and all that. And he did those. And there's a great story. Two stories I'll tell you. The great story with Ken Kelly is that he was a starving artist. I dedicate a whole chapter to the cover. And I, and I highly recommend anybody who's at, at all interested in what I'm saying to pick up the book and jump to that chapter because it's just so much fun. He was a starving artist, and he was barely making it. I think they got something like $75 for a cover. Mm-hmm. And it would take him a week, week and a half to do it. And they painted these covers, by the way. It wasn't drawings. They were paintings. Right. And um, so he turns out he was the, the nephew or cousin of Frank Rosetta, who is the king of that stuff. Frank Rosetta, famous for Vampyra and uh, Vamprella, excuse me, and Conan the Barbarian. And and Kiss, Gene Simmons is a big comic book guy and he wanted Frank Rosetta. So Dennis Wallach, who I interviewed for the book, was the cover designer. He did the design for all the Kiss albums. And he went out to get Frank Rosetta and Frank Rosetta wanted not only like, I don't know, 20 grand for this thing, and, and, but that, that's like $150,000 in 1970 money. He wanted full rights to it. So Kiss couldn't put it on a t-shirt or a poster without him right. getting money. And of course they couldn't do it. So yeah. Crestfallen, Dennis it gets, you know, is walking out on on Seventh on or Eighth Avenue, right by where his office was, and he looks over and, and staring at him from a newsstand is a cover of Erie magazine. And I put this cover in my book uh, that that Ken Kelly had painted with a robot. And, and there, you could just see the eyes of the robot. So the rest of the painting was just the scary robot, but the eyes had emotion. Like they were sad that <laughs> there was someone trapped by there. And he just thought that told the whole story in one painting. He picked up the magazine, came back, called, found Ken Calley. And she, And as Ken told me, it changed my life. Yeah. I became a f- much more famous artist. He did covers for Molly Hatchett. He did Kiss uh, another Kiss album. And it changed. It was amazing how he did it, how he painted this thing. They just gave him these little slides instead of pictures of Kiss. And he, yeah. he had his wife, you know, pose if you've ever seen the cover of that, you know, on yeah, the stairway. Yeah. And he would take pictures of her because he wanted to make him coming down from a mountain. It was, it's a beautiful story. And at the end of my interview, he said, you know, I enjoyed this so much. It was great taking me back. I want to do something for you. So he mails me a hand drawn version of that cover and writes good luck with the book ken kelly which i have hanging in my living room now wow. it's it's in all the things i've done writing books meeting bob Ezrin, meeting alice cooper meeting all these people i've met over the years uh, I, that was the greatest thrill and <laughs> just this past summer ken passed right. we stayed in touch a sweeter man you'll never meet at his story about how on an ancillary level he was a huge part of this massive culture that kiss built up because the subtitle of my book is the Making of American Icon. And I believe Destroyer and that that painting made them more than a band. They became yep. a brand. And yeah. it, and a, a brand that, by the way, is still going now. Yeah. I mean, it's only two guys left in the band, but you know what I mean. The painting, right, the faces.
0: Even when it was the four of them, yeah. Uh, Incredible um, story, yeah. The interesting thing about that album, I was never the hugest Kiss fan, to be honest, but um, I, I, I had to double check just now. I was saying, what's the song listing on it? <laughs> excuse me um they had at least three iconic tracks on that which is yeah. you know probably more than any of their other albums it always seemed like they always had like one maybe two but you know they had detroit rock city uh, uh what am i thinking of uh beth and then what was the other one uh oh, the one i
3: named the book shout it out loud
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and then arguably there's others that you know are still as incredible. Oh, God know, of that, Thunder, which yeah. is
3: everybody knows, that's Gene's yeah. song. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So you know, do you uh, agree with that assessment that that's probably their best album? Oh, or... by far. Yeah, I yeah, think okay. it's
3: I think it's their only great album. I am not. Yeah. I was a Kiss fan for you know a couple of years when I was a kid, uh, and I'm not. I've never. I, I'm not one of those people who stop listening to them and then trash them. I just didn't enjoy their other records as much. Yeah. I like their earlier stuff cuz it's kind of raw. I loved Kiss Alive, I got it for my 8th grade graduation. I was yeah. fascinated by the by the, you know, the whole thing. Just like I said before about Marvel Comics, you know. Yeah. And but to me when that record came out, I was fully immersed in the idea. And it turns out it was as much a Bob Ezrin album as Kiss cuz if you listen to The Wall or Peter Gabriel's first solo album or any of those Alice Cooper albums, you hear what you hear on Destroyer and It's, it's an amazing. And Bob took me behind the curtain. I I made the joke that he was my wizard of Oz took me a year to get him. But once he pulled me behind the curtain, he tells the stories of how he was able to paint cinematic, making a cinematic film out of an album, because back in the seventies, I talk about how we listened to records in the seventies. We, you were tethered, you know, there was no Walkman and there's this and you were lucky if you had a tape deck in your car, you know, you (laughs) just didn't. I mean, rich people did, but you didn't. Yeah. Um, and you sat there with the record and all you had was the cover and the headphones and you went on these dreamscapes yeah. and nobody did that better than Ezra. So for him to build this whole world around these guys, and I'm not saying that kiss wasn't a huge part of it. They were, but he was there Svengali. And then what they did was they ran back to other producers after that. So when they came out with records after that, to me, it paled yeah. to me. It's funny. Cause I, I used, when I did interviews for this, Mark, yeah. I used this thing. When, when the Beatles did Sergeant peppers, you had, Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sergeant Pepper. You could see the movement, you yeah. you know, and Dylan, when he had, you know, um, he had his, his his three albums that led up to, um, to, uh, um, you know, the double album. Blonde,
0: blonde on Blonde. Blonde
3: on Blonde. Yeah. <laughs> but you get nothing like that with Kiss. Yeah. It's like, it's this thing, Destroyer, and then the other, the other stuff. So to me, yes, and it's their finest <laughs> work. It's their finest yeah. work. Yeah. And well, at it was least fun the, to write about.
0: Yeah. At least the music uh, supports the artwork. I mean... Because Agreed. I would say, I would say uh, an equivalency, which is not equivalency, but where the music pales and it has a great cover but in a different way is Kiss Unmasked, which I think is a very funny cover, you know, yes. it's uh, where yeah. they're trying to get them to take off their makeup and everything like yes. that. It's it's, very it's like a comic book. Literally yeah, a comic yeah. book. Yeah. But uh, the music is kind of not their best material Sorry. and I think yeah, they're yeah. about to break up at that point and stuff like that. They might have had yes. one more album, I don't remember, but, you yes. know, it's like Um, just interesting and (laughs) I was never the hugest fan but all my friends were and so I became (laughs) a fan just by you know, I, I knew all the album titles, the Rock and Roll Over and Kiss Alive. And this just because everybody else had them. And I knew all the songs that way. Um
3: People don't but, realize how huge they were. They were, they yeah. were everywhere. And they had toys and, and they had a movie I, and they had I a comic book. The, it
0: was insane. The, Yeah, they had a comic book. They had a Marvel Super Special where they put their blood into it. I had yeah. that, you yep. know, and it's like. Um, they had a TV special that was kind of comic book ish, right. you know, and then they made appearances where on they had superpowers. Movies. Yeah. All yeah, that yeah, stuff yeah, comes yeah. from so. Ken
3: Kelly. Ken Kelly invented that. Yeah. Bob Ezrin and Ken Kelly, those two guys on the visual and the oral a U R a L invented what you know as kiss. I mean, yeah. kiss had to do it first. They painted their faces and they came up with these characters and they're brilliant for doing it. But to me, they become, they end up being an oddity that people remember from the seventies, like a pet rock. Yeah, they don't become this massive thing that's still touring, which yeah. is insane to think about. And, like then, and
0: then you know, there's some people that are still fans of the later stuff and everything like that. For me, it's just like, you know, when they don't have all four, uh, it's the original guys. It just seems like it's a different band, especially when they weren't wearing their makeup for a number of years. It just was like that's a different band. It's not even the same. It's thing not anymore.
3: the same thing, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. So, yep.
0: But anyway, you know, it's just kind of an interesting thing i was just kind of curious about your uh assessment as well so yes yeah um now the other one um accidentally like a martyr tortured at art of warren zevon well i'll say the inevitable thing everybody would probably say i only know warren zevon from werewolves, werewolves
3: of, london, of
0: london which is <laughs> i know him from one other thing because I'm doing a book on the turtles and he wrote a couple of their songs. So. Yes. Like a yeah. seasons, like the yeah. seasons,
3: which is on the B side of happy to happy together. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, although he didn't use his real name oh. on that, on the original single, I think later it came out. He was one yes,
3: of you're ones. right. And and it's funny because uh, he and uh, was it Howard Kalen, right? From yes. the turtles. Yeah. Yep. They were very, very close when, when, when Warren didn't have any money at all, Kalen would buy him, you know, get him a joint, buy him some tacos, you know, get him through days and always thought he was a brilliant songwriter. The thing is so fascinating, and please, I, I don't mean to interrupt if you were going to ask a question, but the thing that always fascinated, fascinated about Warren's career is that everybody around him thought he was completely mad, but also thought he was one of the greatest, if not best songwriters out of all of them. And I'm talking about Jackson Brown, Glenn Fry, uh, Neil Young. Uh, they all were like this. We pale in comparison to this guy. Even later on, I don't think Bruce Springsteen thought this, but he was very <laughs> impressed by Zeevon, wrote a song with Zeevon, Always wanted to know what Warren was doing. And in the end, after Warren died, he does not only a representative version of one of his great songs, My Rides Here, but I think actually a superlative, an actual better version than Warren's version of that song. Mm-hmm. So the songwriters knew how great he was. I mean, Howard Kalen knew when he was, you know, w- you know, wandering almost homeless around Hollywood, how great Warren Zevon was. Mm-hmm.
0: The only thing I can compare him to, and also because I know his career a little bit better, is Harry Nielsen.
3: That's a great comparison. Yeah. Although Harry Nielsen was a singer first, he was a great, great songwriter in the same vein as Randy Newman, whom he loved and did a whole record of his his work. And Warren Zevon, people who do not write, they write novels, right? So Warren always said, Why do I have to write love songs? You know, novelists get to write about you know, killer sharks or mm-hmm. whatever. We, I have to write these songs. Now, obviously other people were writing other types of songs for years. You know, Frank Zappa made a whole career of that. <laughs> Dylan obviously did. But, um, you know, Warren took it to another level. And I always was so fascinated by him. And people always ask me, why, why did you write about a book about Warren Zevon? I said, because not enough people know him and they should. Yeah. And, and the one thing I loved about writing that book, Mark, was that when I went on the book tour, I've never had this experience in all, all my time. I've eight books published. I've never, ever had people come up to me and hug me and thank me for doing it. Yep. They thanked me. They were like, thank you. Somebody needs to write. Because the only other book up until that point was his ex-wife, who I, I interview uh, for my book, uh, Crystal Zevon, who did a oral biography. And it was good, but... She doesn't write about the music or anything like that. So I thought it was a, it, it needed to be done. And and I got the full blessing of his son, Jordan, and everybody in the Zivon family. His uncle's cousins were calling me up out of nowhere <laughs> and thanking me for doing it. And that was, a, like I said, with the Ken Kelly drawing that he sent me, that's the gift of writing a book like that, is that not enough people knew. So it was kind of my little crusade.
2: Yeah.
0: And I have to admit, I'm not as versed about him as I probably should be compared since I have actually quite an extensive music knowledge. of well, you know what you should and- do?
3: You should listen to his first record, uh, the first Asylum record, not the one he did with Kim Fowley. Uh, but the first one, mm-hmm. uh, the, the one he did with Fowley was Wanda Dead or Alive or whatever. Um, that record is a masterpiece. It was mm-hmm. produced by Jackson Brown. Mm-hmm. And you might have heard of Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me. I'll yeah. sleep when I'm dead is on that record. Yeah. Oh, um,
0: yes. I, you know, it's like, I was going to say, what other songs has he done? Hasting down heard? the yeah. wind. Yeah. which yeah. Linda
3: Ronstadt so. made famous. And yeah. uh, it, it's Muhammad's radio. That there's one song after the other, that just hit you right in the chin. He, mm. he, I, I, I think I write in the book. He was a, he was an artist that would never blink. You, you mm. think about you sitting across from someone and they're just staring at you and they're making you have an emotion, some reaction. That's what he did. He forced reactions out of his listeners. And as a writer, that's why Stephen King and Carl Hiaasen and Hunter S. Thompson and Dave Barry, the list is long. They just Mitch Albom. They worship this guy because writers come to people who do that, who write narratives and write arcs and stories. And nobody did that, in my estimation, better than Warren. Mm -hmm.
0: Now I do have to ask this, just because—is yeah. um, yeah. <laughs> Kid Rock a fan? <laughs> oh jeez, yeah.
3: <laughs> you know it's funny. I was at LBI, you know, where Long Beach Island here in Jersey, yeah. go every year with my my um, uh, my family, and we were we were by the pool, and I and they were playing music uh, at the hotel next door on the beach or something, and I I hadn't heard him doing, I guess the Neil Young song into the leonard skyndard song into where of was london back to leonard Skinner. To, you know I, i'm like what the how where have i been under a rock that i didn't even put it <laughs> in my book i have no idea i mean uh, we all grew up everyone knows uh, that song and it's halloween so ow, yeah,
0: yeah. It, it's funny though because i i i pointed out i said hey it's uh, sweet home alabama and uh where was the of london a lot of people can't tell that werewolves of London and look, no, it switches. The song switch. It's not he's not sampling just one song. He's sampling multiple songs. So it's like, oh, sense. you know. So anyway, I noticed it right away. But that's just because sure. werewolves of London, you know, arguably was uh, an immense hit for him. Even if it didn't chart top the charts, it was. I think it, was, it made
3: it to like number sixteen or fifteen, which is yeah. insanely high for him. Warren always said, "I'm a folk singer." That stumbled into a pop singer for a few <laughs> months, and and I remember when when um when I, when I was pitching the book, well originally when I was sitting down with the PR department, I said this is, this is going to be a tough one. Uh, the Kiss book did so well that they allowed me not allowed me, but you know it was easy to pitch an idea like not a lot of people are probably going to buy this, yeah. uh, but <clears throat> I I said you have to remember this is a man who died at that time. I don't remember the book came out in 2018. So he had been dead for 15 years. He died. He's been dead for 15 years. Wow. (laughs) He was famous for eight months, 35 years ago. (laughs) And so this is going to be a tough pitch for everybody here to get people, you know, and, um, but he, he, you know, it's funny. He was David Letterman, as you know, adored him. Yeah. If you don't know, that's, that's a famous story uh, that Letterman always had him on. Mm-hmm. when nobody cared about him he was kicked right. off his label and everything he was a very bad alcoholic yep. um and and he would he would sit in sometimes as the band leader and all that stuff and when he when he contracted inoperable lung cancer and later on misothemioma which they diagnosed he um he only did one show. He did, a few months before he died, he played, Letterman dedicated an entire hour. You can see it on YouTube. It's, it's moving as hell. I write about it in the book. He could barely shuffle his way up to the piano, but he played three songs for David. Mm-hmm. And then I interviewed um, uh, the gentleman from Dawes. Uh, oh, his name escapes me now. I'm so sorry. But he, he had played, Dawes had played Letterman's last week before he retired and he begged them to play accident, not accidentally like a more, um, the last song on that first record, Desperados under the eaves, which is my favorite Bourne's Zevon song. And I, and I start my book with that, an essay about that song. Mm-hmm. And he told me he could stay. Dave was weeping hey. and they were, they were so close. And when David Letterman. um, Inducted Pearl Jam into the Rock and Roll of Fame. He said, "Warren Zevon better be inducted next year." And of course, he still hasn't. But yeah, he's been on a crusade for years to get Warren in the. So there were people who just continued to celebrate his career, even though, like you said, after Werewolves, people just were like, well, "Who is this again? Yeah, Are That guy still making music?" You know, what I mean, there were still <laughs> people out there, you know, uh, ringing the bell for him.
0: Yeah, right. It's just interesting, but the people who know that song at least, you know, they always know. You know, his hair was perfect. His hair was yeah. perfect, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, 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 you know, <laughs> and he's having a pina colada at Trader Vicks. Trader
3: Vicks. Yeah. And yeah. you know what? Uh, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese, who Warren loved, dedicated two albums to. Scorsese loved Warren's work and put yeah. were- Werewolves of London, in Color of Money, and that saved Warren in a very, very dark time. There were a lot of dark times for Warren. You know, I, I met a lot of people around him and they sort of, and his son, like I said, Jordan, and other people, they rooted me to finish the book because Warren is such a dark character and had such a dark life, such a troubled life, yeah. was such a, um, a mercurial figure. And then when he finally cleans up and he's in the best shape of his life, he contracts his cancer. And then he writes a whole record called The Wind about dying,
2: yeah.
3: which later on became fashionable. Johnny Cash did it, David Bowie did it, but... Um, he, he, as far as I could tell, he did it first and it it's, it was so hard for me to get through that book, but I, but once I was done, I looked back at the full scope of this man's life and I realized how much he put in his work where everybody who his daughter told me, his daughter, Ariel, you know, more about my father than I do. There's more about him in these songs than we ever knew about him. So, uh, and that's sad to hear. I hope my daughter doesn't say about that, but that, you know, that you know more about me through my books than being a father. But like I said, he was a very troubled character, Warren. It was tough to write about him. But, um, but I, I was very glad that people loved the fact that I did take the time to do it. And his songs are wonderful. Please, uh, go th- if you have Spotify or something, go through his canon. He's got, even his later stuff when he's just playing in his living room because he can't afford to, to get a studio or a band. Yeah. That stuff's just great. Yeah.
0: I'll probably like him because like I said, if he's similar to Nielsen or what's another one, you mentioned Randy Newman. Is he kind of similar to him in a certain respect? Yes.
3: Yeah. I mean, okay, Randy so. Newman's one of my all time
0: favorite artists. Okay. Yeah. So of course he's yeah. still with us, fortunately. Yes. <laughs> Out of all these, <laughs>
3: Nominated for 40 Oscars and he won one.
0: Yay. Um, What was I going to ask Um, are all these uh, at least these music ones, the kiss one, uh, Warren's even one. Are they also from backbeat as well? Yes. all three
3: for backbeat. uh, They are available everywhere. You get them on Amazon, whatever. If anybody uh, is still with us and they're listening to the podcast and uh, you know, they're enjoying our discussion. If you want a signed book, I will sign it directly to people. If you live in the continental USA, I will mail it to you free on jamescampion.com All of my books are on there. I will sign it to a friend, to you, whatever and mail it out to you for free yeah
0: and then i just wanted to touch on some of the other books Uh, it looks like mainly your other ones are like articles and essays you've written for other publications just kind of compilations am i right or wrong yeah i have two
3: compilations my first published book from 1996 was a book called deep tank jersey uh, and it was about a new jersey club band i wanted to write a band that wasn't famous but made tons of money playing cover material The Jersey circuit is very, very unique. When I did a book tour for that, I went to places like Boston. I went to Philly and they couldn't believe that you could get 3000 people to show up to a club, to see people play, you know, Nirvana songs or something like that. And there is a move. That's where Springsteen came from. That's where Bon Jovi came from. Southside Johnny, that circuit is still, it's not quite the same now. I think I caught it at the very end of the circuit, the way it was in 1995, of course, you can't do any of the things you used to be able to do in bars. Uh, rock and roll bands. <laughs> and they're all in there. It's very sordid and crazy. But I wanted to do that. So that was my first published book. And then there's a couple after that, I did a couple of compendiums of, of essays and columns that I wrote called uh, Fear No Art. And the other one was called Midnight for Cinderella. And in yeah. between that, I, I wrote a book about the historical Jesus when I went to uh, Israel for uh, a month during the election.
0: Oh, OK, I saw that trailing Jesus. Trailing Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> OK. And then there's one called just the letter Y. What is Ah, that? Yes.
3: Well, you might like this book, Mark. (laughs) Maybe I got to get you a copy of this. I'll tell you why. Because if you like comic books, it was my (laughs) attempt. Why? Exactly. It was my attempt to do Lewis Carroll. I tried to take the mathematical concepts of Carroll's Through the Looking Glass and Alice in Wonderland and create an adult version. By adult, I don't mean an X-rated version. I mean... I, and uh, a, a version in which Alice is me and, and the Wonderland is New York City, because I've always believed, I, you know, working for independent weeklies and underground newspapers and uh, art papers in around New York, I, there are places in New York people don't know exist. They're real. And, mm-hmm. But there's a mythos about it. You know, like these underground places like that are in old abandoned shafts or subway places or, but they exist. And, mm-hmm. and I thought I had covered them. Over the years. <laughs> and so I thought I would like to write a, it's my only novel, it's my only work of fiction. Mm. But this some of the stories in that, I'd say most of the stories in it are from my experience as a freelancer running around New York and all the interesting characters I met that are were artists, mm. or at least they thought they were artists or whatever. <laughs> and I I posed the question in the book, what is art? Yeah. Uh and um, you know, what there's highbrow, lowbrow, whatever. But what constitutes art? And it's an argument that my wife and I have had many, many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last real blowout we had was in Paris, <laughs> which was great. We were in Paris discussing art. And I'll ask you, Mark, let me ask you this. Do you th- I feel that art is a two-way street. Mm-hmm. I do something, you react to it. Until my book gets out and is read and people tell me, I hate this, I love this, I cried, I laughed, whatever. It's not art. It's creative. I created it. My wife thinks if you make 50 paintings and you put them in the basement, they are still art, even if no one sees them. I think they're creations, but the, I think, the, to me, the definition of art is, I make it, it's a two-way street. I make it, you react to it. I make a film, you watch it. I scare you. I seduce you. I make you cry, whatever. <laughs> That's I, I make a song, you sing it, whatever. Uh, I think it's a two-way street. What do you think?
0: I think both could be art and I'm not saying as a cop out, but it's like it's a different level. It's it's almost like the word love or the word hand or uh, whatever, that there's multiple meanings for the same word. I mean, because I get what you're saying is like uh, if you're not communicating with anybody, how could that be art? But if you're just drawing a picture for yourself well it's still a picture so that could be art too but it's probably not the same type of art you know so right. that's my cop-out answer no that's but, a know, good answer <laughs> i mean you know
3: it's, the tree falls in the you know woods doesn't make a sound no one hears it make a sound yeah. there's there's you know to me that's why i always call writing a craft yeah. more than art because whenever i'm working on a book the editors always tell me make sure you the reader understands this this is easier to read you probably want to take this part out because you're getting off the track for the, so I'm constantly writing to be read. So that's my experience as a quote unquote artist, if you will. Yeah.
0: All right. Very cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're running out of time again. We got about five minutes and I just wanted to, to let you, you've already kind of started the plug phase, but uh, just uh, plug every book again, if you just want to plug, Hey Jude, you can, uh, but, uh, tell them where they can get those books. And if you're making any personal appearances, how they can get in contact with you, uh, things like that.
3: Yeah. Everything's through jamescampion.com. You can find my books everywhere. Um, just Google me. I'll come up, go to Amazon, type my name in James Campion. You'll find all my books. Um, I don't know when this is coming out, uh, but on November 16th, there's a very special event going on at Rockwood Music Hall in New York City. Do you live in the New York area,
0: Mark? No, I'm in Oregon. I'm, I'm way far away. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so
3: we're having an event. Rob Sheffield from Rolling Stone Magazine oh, cool. uh, of uh, Dreaming the Beatles fame and uh, Life is a Mixtape and he wrote a wonderful book about Bowie. He's going to sit on a panel with me, uh, my good friend Adam Duritz from Counting Crows. He and I are working on a book together. We did a podcast together for years that got stopped during the pandemic called Underwater Sunshine and we co-host a Uh, a music festival in New York, which is happening the 18th and 19th. So that Wednesday, we're doing a panel discussion on my book and Rob, who's in it, Stephen Kellogg, one of the songwriters, Matt Susage, one of the songwriters, everybody that was in my, a lot of people that were in my book are going to have a panel discussion on the Beatles, Hey Jude, songwriting. So if if this is out before the 16th and you happen to be in the New York area, it's between 7.30 and 9. It's free to get in, just RSVP at Rockwood Music Hall. It's on the Lower East Side, right by Katz's Deli, where- the famous Harry bet Sally. I'll have what she's having was filmed. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to that, but we're really wrapping up the book tour um, doing these podcasts have been great. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I enjoyed your show. I enjoyed, I want to thank Lori Jacobson for getting us together. I enjoyed Good. your discussion with Lori and her wonderful book about, about uh, the Shea stadium um, book, but thank you so much again. And if anybody's interested again, I will sign books at jamescampion.com and mail them out for free.
0: Okay, I will definitely get this. I can shuffle the order of my shows so I can definitely get this up before the 16th of Oh, November,
3: thank so, you, man. So, Appreciate that. So. Appreciate it. Where um, in Oregon are you before we...
0: I'm in uh, Springfield, Oregon, right dead center. It's where the home of the Simpsons are. Seriously. Oh, yeah,
3: Springfield. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. They figure out that there's a Springfield in every state, Yeah, but
0: uh, Matt Greinig actually said about 10 years ago, it really is. There is a mural downtown. Of course, now there's a bunch of knockoff uh, graffiti art that looks pretty good around town and everything. So yeah, you can see... Congratulations. The
3: Simpsons, Simpsons are one yes. of my favorite pieces of, uh, you know, entertainment ever created in America. And then can... We're
0: back to back with Eugene and Eugene is where they filmed National Lampoon's Animal House. And... <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> so, a comedy.
3: That's the comedy so, center of America, yeah. apparently.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, we got other things that happened in Oregon. They filmed One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest up here. Uh, they filmed The General by that's right. uh, Buster that's Keaton right. up here. Uh, bunch of other right. stuff. Boonies things like that so anyway. mm. <laughs> but, well, if you ever
3: get to New York look me up we'll okay. go to some literary bars' we'll...
0: I've been to New York about three times but I haven't been since about 2009 so I'm overdue so all
3: yeah. right very good all well th- right. it's very nice meeting you Thank you so much very for having me on you. the show uh, I, I really do enjoy the show I'm looking forward to hearing my appearance but uh, really keep up the fine work I I,
0: okay. I, I enjoy it and uh, we'll keep in touch and you know let me know what next book project you're working on I'll probably want that one too.
3: Yeah, so. I, I haven't really I haven't um, uh, revealed it yet because I need the people that I want to write about to be on board. Uh, and so <laughs> so when I do find that out, I'll, I'll discuss it. But uh, it's a go. I mean, Backbeat said I could do it. And I'm still working on that book with Adam Duritz that I, you know, we ended up doing the podcast, but working on a book about his songwriting uh, and, and performance, uh, you know, how he does it. I wanted to get inside and, and spend time with an artist of his uh, magnitude and he's, he's become a good friend. So we're hoping in the next couple of years that will be done and, and out.
0: All right. Well, I guess that wraps it up. And I want to thank you, James Campion, for being my special guest. I love all your book ideas and thank the you, things uh, I have to get the copies of all these things, uh, especially the Warren Zevon one anyway. Um, and that wraps it up for another fun ideas podcast, and we will see you next time. Peace. Thank you for listening, and thank you, James Campion, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 188 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner, Goldfarb, and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.
2: I will